Essentially Grown. I'm your host, Brian Lilly, along with my co-host, John Kessel. Episode 61 features a speaker from Chapman & Company's Leadership Institute, Matthew Wyatt. We discuss a relationship-centered leadership model, Mr. Wyatt's military influences on his leadership development, time management and leadership, and bridging the gap between how we treat family and how we treat those we work with. This season, Intentionally Grounded is partnering with First Down Playbook. For coaches looking for a playbook software that is user-friendly and can deliver the clarity necessary to share and communicate your scheme with coaches and players alike, check out First Down Playbook. For more information, check out their website at firstdownplaybook.com. And for our listeners of our show, enter the code IGFB20 when purchasing individual or program memberships to receive a discount at checkout. Again, that code is IGFB20. Don't forget to check out our website at igfootballcoach.com for all our blog posts and podcast episodes. And check out our newly released YouTube channel that houses the video cast version of our podcast episodes as well, along with additional content related to leadership, football, and coaching development. Episode 11 of Season 3 of Intentionally Grounded with Matthew Wyatt starts now. And we're joined tonight by Matthew Wyatt. Uh, Matthew, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, great to be with you today. So tell us a little bit about um, your experiences with the military. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about how you developed as a leader and what really got you into the leadership realm of your life. Yeah, sure. I'm currently a, a partner at Chapman Co. Leadership Institute. So we work with organizations around the world on where business and people intersect from a consultancy standpoint. Prior to that, I spent about, about 25 years in the U.S. military. I worked with pretty much all the branches to include the United Nations and NATO and my military experience, I, honestly, I joined, I'm from Orange County, California. I joined out of high school, kind of was, uh, kind of messed around a lot, didn't get good grades, thought I better get some kind of discipline and learning in my life and serve the country and all that kind of stuff, and went and enlisted in the military. And then uh, during my completion of my undergraduate, ended up becoming an officer and served for another 20 plus years as an officer throughout a variety uh, of assignments in the U.S. military. And then parlay that into a career doing very similar work, uh, leadership development, uh, culture, work within organizations around the world now. And one of the things that drew you to us is, uh, was your leadership and your story with Simon Sinek. And can you tell us a little bit about that story um, you know, in your time in Afghanistan and what read, led uh, Simon Sinek to write in that book? Yeah, I was actually working uh, at Scott Air Force Base, which is just outside of Salem, Illinois side. And uh, the, I, was, I was doing work as a chief of this small think tank group that was doing some leadership development. And the commanding general asked me to take the noted author, Simon Sinek, to start with why, in Afghanistan. He was doing some work and writing a leadership. And I was kind of in the leadership development realm. And so I took him into Afghanistan. On our trip out of Afghanistan, after him seeing some of the operations, we were actually flying a fallen soldier home. And at that moment, we were talking about people who serve other people. And we decided to run a little bit of a TED event, TED speaking event. This was the first one that had been done inside the U.S. military, but shared completely outside. So we had civilian speakers and military speakers. We had slam poets and engineers and authors and military. And, and one of the speakers was Bob Chapman. He's the CEO of Barry Waymiller, the company that I started the Chapman Co. Leadership Institute with some of my partners underneath the Barry Waymiller umbrella. It's a capital goods manufacturing company. On that trip out, Simon Sinek and I were talking about this leadership, and that's where he began to write the book Leaders uh, Last. 
it comes from an officer saying that officers eat last. In other words, before you're serving yourself, the people that are in your span of care, you're serving them first. And so that's where the saying comes from, modified and adapted for the publishing world and called Leaders Eat Last. That's where that book started to be written, was on a trip uh, coming home from Afghanistan. Now, some of your other speaking engagements, one of the other big things you've talked about is relationships. And relationships have been a large component of your leadership structure that you've promoted with your platform throughout your career. So what makes relationships so important to leadership and why do you believe many leaders struggle with this component? Um, let's take the first part of it. And then maybe the second part, I'm not sure that I can answer really correctly, but the first part, so I'll tell you a very short story. I was working in the Pentagon and I was living in downtown Washington, DC. I was working for a four star and this general, it's a lot of work. The Pentagon is a lot of work and it's a lot of long hours. I'm leaving the house at a really early hour before light. I'm coming home when it's dark and I'm, and I currently really don't have a life outside of that work. And I'm, I'm dating someone at the time and it's living downtown. And one morning I come in and this general says, Hey, come on in the office. I want to talk to you. And people are waiting outside. This is, this isn't about uh, wars or politics or like that. It's just that the story takes place in the military context. That's my background. This general calls me in and had noticed kind of some things in my personal life. And he calls me and closed the door. There are other people waiting. We have, there's a war going on in, in Afghanistan. There's operations going on in Iraq. There's a lot of busyness going on. There's a full day's worth of work to be had. He calls me in the office. And I always remember this because it's, it's the Air Force side. It's on the E-wing. All the carpet's blue. You got blue leather couches, homage to the U.S. Air Force. And the general says, uh, you have to stop volunteering for everything. You have to stop trying to save the day. You have to stop pouring everything into this um, because I'm not a good enough leader to keep you from destroying yourself. If you want a life outside of just a career, you got to find a way to not constantly volunteer, save the day. You got to find a way to lead and motivate others to do some of that work as well. Because for foreseeable future, we're going to meet once a morning, Monday morning, and we're going to talk about how you're doing in your personal life. And I've served with a lot of military people and just unbelievably fantastic, incredible people. But I'll never forget that conversation. I'll never forget that someone like that cared that much to, to pause in their busy day and have that type of care for me. Uh, we're still friends to this day. And although any of my previous people that I've served with, I would answer the phone, I would, I would come running to them, um, I'd run through a brick wall for him. And so when it comes to relationships and seeing someone as a person before you see them as a function, uh, that's what inspires people. When it comes to understanding, do other leaders struggle with this? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure that maybe perhaps some of them do, perhaps not. It's hard for me to answer that aspect. I think it's more and more in the forefront that what inspires us are people who serve people. And it's almost like that time has come that we're having that discussion more and more. Matt, one of the topics that you've spoken on in the past uh, is the divide that exists between how we treat people in the organization versus how we treat someone in our family. Why do you believe there's such a difference in behavior between how we treat people and cultivate relationships in these different settings? Yeah, and if I get this right, John, you're asking about the difference between how we might treat someone in our organizations and how we might look at it in our home life. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, 
um, a lot of times you hear people say, well, you know, I try not to bring work home or I try not to treat it differently, but shouldn't the culture you try to cultivate at home be similar to the one you're, you're trying to cultivate at work as well? You know, is there, why is there such a separation? Yeah. And so let me, um, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be argumentative about this, but I just throw this out there. Um, I think when people say, oh, I don't bring work home, I think that's really an impossibility. The things that happen in our work life influence and impact us emotionally underneath the surface. When we act like, oh, I'm just going to shed all of that and become an entirely different person. If you're one person at work and you're one person at home, um, you're lying in one of those roles. And I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean it in a way that says you're having to stress and be another person. So really when it comes down to it, I think I'm not sure there's that much separation that people think that I can leave how I'm treated at work completely behind, turn it all off, mean a completely different person at home. Um, I'm not asking people to believe this. I would say ask somebody close to you to, to indicate to you when you're having a good day and bad day. Let them predict, see what they would predict about when you had a great day at work and not a great day at work. My guess is they're going to be highly accurate. So if you think you're not bringing it home, you are on both sides, good and, and the negative side. Um, for Barry Weymouth, the organization we work with, we think about the places that we work, learn, heal, play, these places that are our employer where we spend the vast majority of our waking hours, they either send us home fulfilled or depleted, one or the other. And if I put it in that binary sense, I have a much greater responsibility. Your question about why is there a difference between the two, um, I think at work it's easier to categorize people. You're an engineer, you're a secretary, you're an accountant, you're sales. And I look at you much more as a function. When I come home, it's hard to look at my uh, my spouse, my children that are growing up as a function yet because they don't fulfill that. So it makes it easier um, for me to not almost like objectify that. And there's no like just common uh, monetary or numeric goal that I'm working for in the family. I think it's easier for us to fall into the idea that at work, it's just you're an accountant. Here are the hours you're supposed to put in. Did you or did you not meet expectations? I'm going to put you on a performance improvement plan. We're either going to let you go or I'm going to give you a bonus. That kind of structure that exists that I fall so easily into that I forget about the relationships. Now, Matt, one of our, probably most of our listeners here are coaches. Um, they coach various sports at the high school levels and the college levels. And so, you know, relationships and culture are two big components of their job on a day-to-day -day basis. And so as a leader in any kind of form, whether it be an assistant coach, an um, administrator at school, or even a head coach, what are some of the ways we can cultivate a culture where everybody feels valued and empowered? Yeah, a really good question. I think Number one, especially in the coaching realm, there's a couple of different aspects here. When I think about an athletic coach, there's a legitimate dependency in this. So as an example, as the coach, I see things the players don't. I'm directing the players to do a certain things because they don't see it. And I'm helping them learn the game. From a coach, from a life standpoint, it differs a little bit that now I need to transmit less. And if I really want to value someone, I need to listen to their perspective. Even though all of us have probably been through um, a high school, applying for a college, going through sports, losing, winning, uh, personality disagreements, all of those things, our life is not the same as someone else's. So rather than layer on a whole bunch of here are five things you should do, I would just say this offhand, like top level, think about listening to their perspective. Uh, curiosity fuels empathy. 
empathy fuels connection and the way the skill or the behavior of curiosity is, I ask open-ended questions. How are you doing? How did that mean to you? What did you take from this? What did you learn from this? If I put myself and structure into where I'm listening more than I'm talking, providing perspective or advice, it's one really powerful way that I show that I value someone. It's less about giving advice and much more about, I just want to hear from your perspective. If my life is not the same as yours, it's not the exact same path. After I hear that, I might provide advice, perspective, collaboration, but if I want to value someone, I'm going to listen up front. With relationships being such a key component uh, of the leadership structure, uh, it should be noted that management and maintenance of those relationships is vital to the success. Um, with that being said, inevitably some relationships become fractured. And when it does, what are some of the ways to manage a situation where maybe someone has either ruined your trust or ruined the relationship from their end, or even from your end, um, you have maybe not fulfilled what their expectation of the relationship was? Yeah, uh, good question. So I'm going to throw two I'll throw two aspects at this for you. One is understanding what makes really high-performing and powerful teams. And so I would encourage any of the listeners out there to go look at, it's called Project Aristotle. It's open source. Google ran some work on this. They threw a lot of money at this. They tried to figure out if we hire some of the best and brightest talent from some of the most incredible universities around the world, why is it that some of our teams are highly effective? In other words, they meet the requirements, they have high engagement, uh, they have their stay on budget and on schedule. Why is some teams are really highly effective and other ones are not? So they put a lot of effort into trying to figure out why that exists. Their hypothesis was we pay top of the market. People believe in the work. We recruit some of the best talent. So what's the determining factor of what leads to high-performing teams and teams that aren't? What they found was really fascinating. You can look this up. Just Google Project Aristotle. It's all open source and really great stuff. What they found was the factors that you might think would drive effective teams and relationships, things like pay and benefits and average IQ or one superstar IQ in the team or location or the size of the team, they found that those weren't the driving factors. The driving factors, number one, was psychological safety, that I feel free to admit mistakes, say I don't know, ask for help. Number two was uh, dependability. Can I do the job? Am I competent? Number three was structure. Do I know what my role is and the role of other people in my team? Number four was meaning, that the work is personally meaningful to me. And number five was impact, that the work I do creates change and value to the organization. The reason I bring this up is when we talk about relationships, it kind of sounds like it's a really soft skill and something that's separate of performance. And yet when you look at the driving factors of what high-performing teams all do, is they have a high degree to admit they don't know something, they need help, they made a mistake. All of those things exist in the psychological safety realm. And so when I'm asked things like what happens when the relationship um, doesn't come up to its standards or there's been some kind of fracture in that, I think about, well, one is naming it is a really powerful tool in creating the psychological safety that relates back to team effectiveness. The other aspect of this, because you mentioned the word trust, is just to unpack that for a second. You literally can't behave trust. I can do certain behaviors that lead to the feeling of trust and define trust as a belief in someone or something. If I were to take all the behaviors from listening to being honest to doing what you say you're going to do, 
to being an advocate for you, to admitting when you made a mistake, all of that list of behaviors. If I put them into four categories, the four categories would be something like um, compassion. I give a damn about the person. There would be, the second one would be something like character, um, that I'm going to do the right thing as a person. The third one would be competence. In other words, I know how to do the job. And the fourth one would be like consistency. I can do the job repeatedly over time in a highly repeatable manner. Competence and consistency, I can see. I can see that you can do the job. I see you've done it a lot. The care, the compassion side of things, and the character side of things is much more difficult. And so admitting of a mistake or understanding there are four areas here and I need to focus on the compassion side as a care as a person and the character side is much more important to rebuilding that trust. When people say, well, when trust is broken, then what do you do? You go right back into those four areas. I care for you as a person. I'm going to do the right thing moving forward. I'm competent in the job to do it, and I'm consistent. I can do it over time. You just go right back into those. Do you use your relationships uh, to motivate your coworkers, peers, uh, friends? Do you use those relationships to, as a motivational tool as well? Um, yeah, and sorry, the last question was a, that was a long answer there, and so I don't want to uh, kind of lecture this part. So I want to ask more questions for, for probably the audience who's listening. So I use relationships to motivate. Uh, probably the first thing to understand is you literally, from a human perspective, I can't motivate another person to do anything. All I can do is create the environment. So as an example, um, my car right now, it's not for sale. If you show up with a suitcase full of money and it's two times the blue book value of my vehicle, suddenly you got a set of keys in your hand and I'm looking for a new car. You didn't do anything to me. You didn't motivate me. You just created an environment where I couldn't resist what you offered. Um, the relationships to motivate people. This is what I asked the readers, or your, sorry, your viewers to do. I asked them to take two pieces of paper out. And on one piece of paper, I want you to write down the name of the best leader you've ever had in your entire life. I don't care whether it comes from academia, whether it comes from sports, maybe athletics, whether it comes from your current job, previous job, doesn't matter. Just somewhere in your life, the greatest leader that you've ever had, a real person who you reported to or that was influential to you, write that name down. Fold that piece of paper, put it in your right pocket. On the other piece of paper, I want you to write down the name of the worst leader you've ever had. I don't care. Same thing. Anywhere in your life, academia, athletics, your work, your current job, previous jobs, fold it up, write that name down, fold it up in your left pocket. One day, if you're a leader, one day someone is going to be asking someone to write down the name of the best leader and worst leader they've ever had. Your name could be on one of those pieces of paper or it gets forgotten. But either way, you're making decisions as to where your name's gonna show up. I want you to look at those two pieces of paper, worst leader and best leader, and you think about, what would I do for that best leader? What would that best leader do for me? So when it comes to relationships and motivation, I wanna stay, mo stay out of almost the manipulation part, like, hey, aren't we friends, we do this for me, and more, um, as a leader, I care for you. When I care for you that much, I'm inspired to do that work, that person automatically leans into, and I'm here with you. I'm here to serve with you. Another thing with being a leader is it's a, a very taxing um, thing for a person to be in, whether it be time taxation or just an emotional investment that you take um, on as a leader, whether you take the emotions of your people that you, you lead, that you kind of harbor yourself, or just the emotional, you know, 
gravity of just the situation yeah. that you're in. And so when you look at all that together, what advice would you give for leaders when they're navigating through the time commitment and emotional investment that is necessary to be a transformational leader? Yeah, good question. I, you know, when you break out leadership, so a, cu- a couple of framing elements in this, if you break out leadership and the time that you spend doing it, if I were to look at anybody's job and I would ask someone to say, I want you to look at your work week. Let's say that's hundred percent of your job. I want you to categorize it and I want you to put the percentage into four areas. Area one is the work, the time that you spend working on yourself, not selfishly, but the time you spend working on yourself to get better so you can serve your people better. So if you're a formal leader where you have direct reports, people reporting into you, the time you spend reading books, watching podcasts, going to classes, learning about leadership. That's the work on self category. The next category is the work that I spend on my team. It might be performance reports, might be coaching discussions, might be what I need to do to work with the team to understand where they need to go. The third category is work on the business. Strategically, the vision, where is the group going? Where is the team going? And you don't need to own your own business for this. I just mean in a sense of a, you're leading a group of people strategically where are you going in the next year and three years, five years. The last bucket is work in the business. This is like doing emails, solving people's problems, answering your leader's questions. When I ask people to, to put, think of their work week, whatever their work week is, how many hours, 100%, and I ask them to put in a bucket, where do you spend your time? Approximately 60% of everyone's leader's time is spent working in the business, like doing the busy work. It's not the work of leadership. It's almost as if the work of leadership is an extra job. And that comes into working on myself, working on my team, working on the business. So one step advice that I would offer is be cognizant about where you actually are spending the time. And if I gave you 10 more minutes or 10% more time in your week, where would you spend it? Because a lot of us go, and myself included, I go right to the email. I just need to clear out some of the email, all these tasks that can come in. One is to be conscious about where I'm spending my time so that I make more intentional behavior choices. The other perspective I would give people is oftentimes we promote the best doer. So you've been the best doer, the best salesperson, best pilot, best engineer, best accountant. And we suddenly make you the king or queen of the doers. You were great at the job, so why shouldn't you be now a leader? Fundamentally, your job has changed. Sometimes organizations, we never tell people that, and we don't train them that. So when you're asking for me to say, what's the perspective of how much time it takes and the emotional toll, it's probably cognizant says, do you actually want to do this job? Because what people don't tell you with the leadership is, it's taxing. And when done right, there are times that you feel like, I am on this planet doing the right work, and there are times that it will bring you to tears. And perhaps if you have both of those, that's when you know you're doing the job right. Now, there's also critics out there who look at leadership and, and they might look at, you know, relationship oriented leadership and say that it's way too much process oriented and not enough product oriented. And so yeah. for those critics who might say that and kind of believe in that line of thinking, what would you say to them in terms of saying that this methodology of leadership is worthwhile their investment? A couple, couple factors here. One is I would cite to a lot of the macro studies. So those organizations that are on best places to work lists, they routinely outperform the S&P 500 by uh, several fold. So one is to say, if you just want the macro data, here's where I'd show you that places that have a great culture end up having great customer service. 
end up having great financial returns. Um, Herb Kelleher, the previous uh, CEO and president of, of Southwest Airlines, who, uh, who passed in, I think, January of 19, just an incredible gentleman. I think he said it really, really well. The, the business of business people, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so one is to understand great cultures inside, we're based on relationships, typically have great customer service, great customer service, has great profitability. Great profitability means the shareholders are happy. Um, Herb Kelleher would say, your job is to take care of your people. Your people take care of your customer. Your customer takes care of your company, in that order. And I would say one is to cite to the, the data that shows that to be true. The other one is if I'm not much on, like, I'm going to provide you my opinion on this. So I really like putting people and asking questions and seeing how they respond. So one of my favorite activities is to put, doesn't matter how large the room, I'll ask people, I want you to write down one single word that inspires you. I don't care what the word is, just write it down. People will write down this word. It's a variety of different things. I say, now I want you to think about a story behind why you wrote down that word, a specific story that details why you wrote down the word that inspires you. Then I'll have people introduce themselves. They'll talk about what their word is. They'll share the story. Like it's a quick 10-minute introduction activity. People are up. The energy in their room goes up. Everybody's talking about what inspires them. Then I'll use some type of third-party technology device, like a live polling device where people can put into a multimedia device like their phone or something what their word is. And then we'll build a live word cloud of what inspires people. And we've done this. I'll do it with 20 people in the room. Sometimes we'll do it in events where it's over thousands of people in the room. And this giant word cloud comes up. The word cloud is always the exact same. What inspires us are things like love and trust and people and challenge and perspective and care. And then I'll ask, what do you not see on this list? Return on investment, profit share, marketability. Uh, sometimes money rarely, rarely comes up. And when it ever does, I'll always ask the person, why did you write the word money? What's the story behind it? 100% of the time, they'll start with saying, well, we didn't have a lot of it growing up. And I'm not, I'll be damned if my family is going to want for something. It's not that money inspires us. It's what money provides. And so when people say, I'm not sure, you should be much more process oriented. That's cool. But if you want people to lean in and do the work, people are inspired by relationships and people who serve people. That's not my opinion. It's run over hundreds of thousands of people we've put through any of this training. The word always comes up the same. It's about people serving people. And so to those people, I'd say, you're perfectly fine. Run your engagement surveys. Engagement tells you who's doing the work. I'm more interested in who's inspired. In other words, who wants to do the work? Because those are people that will innovate. They're more resilient. They'll go through change better. I'm interested in that. And it's not that money or ROI or profitability or market share, those are the, that's, that's the, the dashboard of a business. It's very important. It's just that I shouldn't use those to think about inspiring people because it doesn't inspire people. Matt, I want to go back to the story you talked about in the Pentagon. Um, and, and your four star says to you, you know, really, you're serving too much. You know, at, at what point do you become a victim of your servitude or you become, you become a detriment to the people you're serving? So you're, you're, you're doing so much that, like you shared, your personal life had began to take a, a step back and wasn't as successful. At what point does your servitude become maybe not necessarily an issue, but something that is too much? 
when you've reached the level of where you have made yourself indispensable to the organization. And I know from a very personal standpoint, uh, and not personal like personal to me, but just from an individual standpoint, we tell people that become indispensable from a military kind of viewpoint. If I've made myself indispensable to the organization, it means as soon as I'm not there, the organization falters, the team falters. So really my job is from a servitude piece, if you're placing yourself in a position where only you can do the work, then you're a single point of failure for that team, for that organization. And ideally what we should think about is how am I making other people also able to do it to where when I don't show up in a day, it's perfectly fine. The organization runs just fine. And I think the CEOs that I work with that are really great at their job, they're people that if they don't show up, the organization still makes decisions in line with their values, with their purpose. They make intelligent decisions. They make the proper risk-taking. And that senior leader doesn't need to be involved in all of it. And I think that's where we cross the line between where does servitude and my ability to serve and help, where does it cross the line that now I'm actually harming myself or the organization when I've made myself completely indispensable to everything. One of the final questions that I would have for you, Matt, you know, I want to look at it from, you know, a leader who's probably just starting out and becoming a leader in his organization or her organization. And one of the big things that we've heard from other guests is kind of the importance of setting a vision and using that vision to maybe establish your core beliefs or your core values, and then making sure that everything that you do and your follow-up and your actions are in alignment with those core values. And so how important do you think it is in terms of coming up with core values, but in that process, getting the values and the input from the rest of the people you're leading in cultivating and kind of forming those core values, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I, the easy answer is obviously to say, oh, it's really important. I was doing this, one of the, one of the tests they do for officers of the US military, they put you into what's called a, a leadership reaction course, LRC. It's basically a physical type of environment that has a lot of rules associated with it. And you have to use teamwork to get through. I remember the one that I was doing, it was, these, it was, a, it was a, a, basically a pond, and the rules were you couldn't touch any of the water or these red areas that were outlined, and inside this pond, it had these concrete posts that were just sticking up to where you could step on each one, and you couldn't jump to the other, but you had these boards that you carried, the boards you laid down to go from one end of the pond, and you laid them into these concrete posts, one after another, and you walked with the team across on these these boards and you picked up the boards as you walked across them to then set them again and be able to take the whole team across. And this isn't about you doing it fast. It's about you doing it together. That's how they, they rate you. And I can remember walking out on this leadership reaction course and I've got this idea in my head. We're going to want these pros and I'm telling people how it's going to go. And I'm telling them we're going to put this board here. And now we walk out and we walk out and pretty soon, I don't know how it happens, but I remember I have half my team in the middle of the pond we're on these boards and I pulled other boards up. They're off. And I have the other half of the team on the bank. I have no idea what I'm doing. None. So this is relating back to your question about, should you know where you're going? Should you have a vision? I was so much in the execution phase that here I am stuck. And I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea what to do right now. And I remember looking at the team that I brought five of them out there with me. And I said, any of you guys have any ideas? I yelled back to the group that's uh, sitting at the, the bank. Hey, do you guys have any ideas? And this one gentleman who was an officer candidate who was in uh, the technology or computers like IT, about five minutes past, he's got, I got an idea. And it was, 
I didn't even know what he was going to say. So I just said, tell the rest of the team, see if they agree with you. Cause I didn't have time to go back and forth. Team's like, yep, he's got a great idea. We execute his idea. We get across and I look great because I've asked the question, but really I had no idea what I was doing. Um, the reason I bring this up is I think it's easy to say you should have a vision. You should have values. Sometimes that's really tough, especially when you're starting out. Um, and so the one aspect I would give, I'm not a big person on giving advice, but this is the one part I would, and that would be the people that are closest to the work, ask questions incessantly. Be curious about the people that you are leading. Allow that to kind of influence your perspective and where you want to be as a leader. I think the rest of it ends up being a lot of your background. For me, I don't think that I had any special childhood. I don't think that I had any vision starting out. But I sure wanted to know the people that were doing a lot of the work. I wanted to know what they were going through. And the more empathetic I came, the more I recognized how I wanted to show up as a leader. So while I would agree it's important of the values and the strategy, I think before all of that forms, I just want to know what you're going through as a human being. Uh, Because then I can show up as a human being to help you. 